Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. Uh, this is Carlo, and uh, I got uh, Pete over here, who's back from uh, investigating some weird occurrences out in the cornfields in Nebraska. Is that right, Pete? Uh, well, actually, th- this time it was in Kansas, but yes, absolutely. And oh. and I, um, I've got a new roommate out of the deal. Oh, excellent, excellent. And we're joined by Alexander Hill, uh, editor of Corio Magazine. Uh, which is forthcoming. Uh, hello, Alexandra. Hey, great to be here. All right. So um, I just wanted to ask you, so uh, I know that people could probably look it up if they went to your, uh, your magazine website, but what does Corio mean? Um, so Corio comes from a um, Greek word that basically is the root of a number of different biological terms. Um, And the reason that we picked it is essentially the verb means to kind of disperse, to move forward, to really kind of move away. And it's also kind of the stem for a bunch of different seed types. So for example, think of dandelion seeds that are dispersed by the wind. Um, You can also get hydrochores that are dispersed by water, et cetera, et cetera. And so because Corio Magazine is um, a magazine of speculative fiction by immigrant and diaspora writers, we really wanted to pick a name that kind of mimicked all the different ways that people can move around the world, can find new homes, or can be forced to find new homes. Oh, that's very cool. Um, Thank you. And so in this case, um, I'm guessing that you're looking for – are you looking for – uh, diaspora writers or stories about that or combinations thereof? So I think combinations thereof is, is the best way to put it. So we we really are focused on writers who identify as immigrants or members of a diaspora. Um, the, the definition that we use is very, very loose because we don't want to be the ones who are kind of policing who is immigrant enough or not. If mm-hmm. an author identifies as such, they are more than welcome to submit. Um, but the stories that we're looking for really are those that kind of tie into the experience of migration, whatever part of that, whatever part of it that may be, um, but in any way. So that means in a metaphorical way, in a kind of very literal way, in a speculative way. Um, however, you choose to interpret the term, we are kind of open to seeing that kind of story. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, something something is happening here that. Um, it keeps happening in this podcast, Carlo. I mean, we mm-hmm. we had we originally launched the podcast on the theory that there was an ivory tower where literature resided, and then there was sort of a mulch pile on the side where the speculative fiction was, and we didn't like that. We thought there were things of value being lost. We thought that um, it it created accessibility issues and all of these things, and as like the 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 guy with science fiction bedsheets like i am really really into 
like all, all of that stuff. And in some ways, and in a good way, don't get me wrong, Alessandra, in some ways, this is a uh, this is an indictment of my reading style, because what you're doing is you are fighting for the stories that could be lost within the stories that could be lost. And I think that's an incredibly noble move. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think really what, what kind of started all of this is looking for a way to raise the voice of people who, like you said, aren't being seen enough. And also in replicating and kind of bringing together authors who come from, you know, I'm not going to say a similar background because the kind of the group, you can't say that all immigrants right, belong to like one full group. You can't have one member speak for everything because all the experiences are so very different. But I do think that there are threads that unite us kind of in this with this idea of having, you know, one foot in one world, one foot in another. And I think that speculative fiction is absolutely the perfect way to explore that because I mean, all of these stories take you to some version of a new world, whether it's like a, a reflection of this one or something entirely new. So are both of those the mission? Like on, on the one hand, trying to give people a voice and on another hand, hunting for the commonalities? I, th- I think so. So I, I think that, you know, when, when I was growing up, right, my parents, I'm, I'm Polish Canadian, I'm born to Polish immigrants in Toronto. Um, and my parents all sent me to Polish school, which by the way, I hated completely. It was just the worst thing because it was just kind of me on my own when I just wanted to fit in. Um, and I think as, I was, as I've grown up, I've seen a lot of my friends who are immigrants have similar experiences where they went to Farsi school or to some other kind of specific community school. Um, but there are so many co- commonalities in the experiences that we've had that I do want to bring a platform to kind of bring these readers together for, for people to, to see a story by someone with a completely different you know, background than theirs and have it, you know, have that moment of something ringing in your soul where you're like, I understand this. Um, and I'm I'm really excited for kind of seeing how the stories that we bring to the table can can inspire this in our readers. Hmm. That sounds great. Um, and uh, like I can't really cop to being a full immigrant because I came here from Puerto Rico, but you've got a better argument than me. So. Well, that that's absolutely <laughs> true. I, and to be fair, like my my other hand argument would be. Yes, but it actually does feel very like we have McDonald's and we have all the sort of silly things that, you know, someone like uh, uh, Thomas Friedman would argue is uh, markers of, quote, Western civilization. But it is not the same place. And I had a horrible culture shock, like for the first couple of months while I was here. Uh, Some of it was, you know. Honestly, a uh, pleasant surprise, but some of it was not. And uh, I, can, I can sort of relate to that. <laughs> um, so, and granted, we here at Potside Picnic understand. I mean, Pete will tell you, because Pete's been here from episode one, that the direction has changed. And you, I understand, Alexander, that your magazine hasn't really uh, released an, an issue yet that is for February of next year, right? Yes, we're launching February 15th. So really excited. To, but but we already are kind of narrowing. We're, we're very close to finalizing our first issue. We should be having kind of the communications all sent out this week. So we, we know what's coming, what's on the horizon, which is also very exciting. Excellent. Well, um, and the reason I, I, I ask that is because, you know, obviously it sounds like you have a good, uh, like a good 
idea of what the shape of the magazine is going to look like. But obviously, that may change as further issues in, you know, as time passes. So, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in seeing what the first issue looks like. And then, you know, maybe uh, later on, we see what, what happens. Um, that being said, so do you have an idea? Like, it sounds like you had uh, sort of a mission statement in what you said before, but as you've been going through what has been submitted so far, uh, have you gotten a better idea of what you're looking for or were there any surprises that you, you know, you weren't looking for and somehow it showed up and you're like, Oh yes, this totally, this totally fits. So yeah, it's, it's really funny because when you're, when you're talking about kind of what we've gotten a lot of, um, one thing we've realized we saw a ton of that we really should have foreseen, but somehow didn't expect was food. And I'm sure as soon as I say it, you're kind of thinking, yes, like naturally food is such a clear part of home. Um, you know, at Christmas, like I make pierogi with my mom every year. Um, and it's such a natural part of what brings us together and kind of what what creates a sense of culture and family and, and kind of belonging. Um, and it, it, we had enough stories that we honestly could have had a full issue about food. And I, I think that we're going to end up actually having a special that's dedicated to it because uh, it, it, it just feels so natural. Um, but kind of stepping back and away from, from the specific deliciousness, I also haven't had dinner, so I'm, I'm <laughs> narrow, honing in on that a little bit. Um, it really kind of what we ended up seeing is that there, there were certain stories and, and a very huge number of them that just pinged something in our first readers' hearts. Like I mentioned, that that sense of echo of what they have experienced versus like what the story was telling. And I think that's what we've been looking for most. Um, kind of as, as we look at our team, we have been focused on creating a really diverse and inclusive team. Um, most of our staff um, of volunteers are either immigrants or members of a diaspora. Um, and so we, we've been looking for stories that kind of bring together that commonality, even if it's not explicitly talking about, you know, an act, explicitly talking about an act of migration versus that kind of more metaphor, metaphorical interpretation of the term. There's still a way to kind of bring that feeling out in our readers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Um, it, it, you, it's funny because uh, the minute you said food, I was like, yes, this yeah. <laughs> makes perfect sense. Because, like, to to be honest with you, like, uh, we, um, my wife and I, right before like the the, the whole COVID news came out, we we managed to uh, get to Puerto Rico uh, for like just before New Year, and mm-hmm. uh, and one of the first things I did was go to a, the the restaurant I always went to to eat like you know rotisserie chicken and some mofongo, which is like a, a mashed and uh, rebaked plantain. Uh, with like pork fat back in it, it's I, I can't recommend it enough. But it's it's very labor intensive, so I've never really made it myself. <laughs> but anyway, the the point being that we drove directly, like I made a beeline from the airport directly to that place because that was going to be lunch first day right out the gate, and I, I felt like I was back home the minute I you know the minute I dug into some rice and beans and whatnot. Yeah, the my my husband and I are both immigrants and. Um, we throw two parties a year, not this year, to be very clear. Um, <laughs> but we kind of pack our 700 square foot one bedroom apartment with like 40 to 50 people again when there's not a global pandemic. Um, his party is an abgusht party, which is basically like a stew 
um, Iranian stew. Mm-hmm. And mine is a Mikawaiki party where it's, which is kind of St. Nicholas day in Poland. Um, it actually would have been next weekend, which is kind of a huge bummer. Um, but basically I end up making like 200 pierogi by hand by myself, like hunter stew, um, miseria, this like cucumber salad, a whole bunch of different things. And it, it feels not just like I'm coming home and kind of able to connect with like who I am, but also this feeling of like sharing who you are with your friends and loved ones and like showing this part of yourself that, you know, they might not always see. Um, <laughs> and also getting people to kind of eat pickled herring and, and a lot of cabbage is just, you know, very yeah. necessary as, as a Polish person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, it feels very much like um, we, we, we try to uh whenever thanksgiving and or uh christmas happens in our household uh i end up getting uh uh i end up making like a pernil which is basically a, a pork loin with like you know just just stuffed full of like cilantro and and um garlic and whatnot and obviously the 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 main standout there uh i don't know if you eat pork or not you know but I, I if do. you if you do, uh, the pork fat back is usually the <laughs> usually the thing that people come come to to visit for. Uh, they stay for the rest. Uh, but anyway, that's the thing that everyone's now. Oh, Carlos Carlos Bernier. Okay, he's going to make some Bernier to this this Christmas again. Uh, but yeah, I, I could I, I, I could totally have to relate. Try it. No, oh, that sounds amazing. I actually we we went to Puerto Rico once, and I don't think I tried it there. So now we have to go back. But we ended up in Culebra for for a week, and it was just oh, it's breathtaking. I, I, you know, I, I, that's the funniest thing. I lived there and it's sort of like Disney world. If you live in Orlando, <laughs> <laughs> you never go there, right? Uh, unless visit, uh, unless, unless somebody visits and they want to go. Uh, but anyway, uh, but Culebra is beautiful, uh, from what I've seen of it and, and so on. Um, but it, it the, was really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. The good thing is that like all of the stuff that I'm mentioning here on the Puerto Rican side of things is, uh, a lot of it is very much like Christmas dishes, um, and the good thing about Puerto Rico is that there's still to this day, uh, it's almost like a month full of Christmas. So, <laughs> uh, Carlo, could you tell her something for me? Yeah. Uh, tell her that this is actually, uh, uh, sort of a living demonstration, uh, podcast about the voices of the unheard. And that's why she can't hear me. I can hear you. <laughs> oh, no, you, you can't can hear, hear okay. me. <laughs> Uh, I okay, so she can hear you just fine, Pete. Um, oh, so well, in this I case, oh no, uh, okay, well, in any case, um, yeah, so in this case, uh, apparently, because we're we're having uh, some technical difficulties with uh, Pete, I'm not sure if anyone, uh, uh anyone outside of us can hear him, but. Uh, this does seem to be an interesting uh, example of the voices of the unheard, and sadly, it's Pete. <laughs> At least for this episode. Hey, look, if we were going to pick someone in this episode to not be heard, it would definitely be me. So it's fine. <laughs> but um, so in this case, uh, apart from the food stories, so that that sounds interesting. Uh, that would be an interesting uh, extra or, or uh, special issue. But um, what, what, or did you see anything that helped formulate what your, like, what the vision would be moving forward of of the magazine? Yeah. So I, I honestly think that we we haven't solidified what the vision is beyond kind of looking for that kind of 
sense of recognition. But funnily enough, you know, we have we have this larger team. I think we have about ten ish first readers, um, two co editors, and then I'm um, editor in chief. And somehow between all of us, we all end up kind of gravitating towards the same kind of pieces. So it, it almost feels like a read and find out, um, to quote Robert Jordan. <laughs> but you know, it, it. I think we're all surrounding ourselves with certain types of stories and i think the more we we find them and the more we can bring them to the world the clearer it'll be what that kind of means which is not exactly a great answer but it's it's the best i can give you for now kind of with a sample size of, of 200 stories for now right right and and to be fair like i i think i'd mentioned it before that you know uh, this this is still the first episode you know maybe down the line that may shift slightly but uh, it does sound like you have a good idea of what what makes a, a Coriel story or a Coriel story. Um, so I guess my other question would be what made you think like what happened or what was different about now uh, in the short fiction field that, you know, sort of spurred you or inspired you to sort of take this on. Cause I mean, as I understand it, um, a, a, a short fiction magazine is, very there's a lot of work involved and it's very much uh, a labor of love for a while yeah it, it definitely is and i think that there were kind of three things that happened um and i'll try not to monologue for for too long oh, but no, fe- you know the, the first thing <laughs> fe- feel <laughs> free thing i mean this is your forum to to speak <laughs> uh and that gets here you hear you um i won't stop no yet. but like <laughs> the, the first thing really was wanting to see more of like certain kinds of stories, right? Like, like I mentioned before, it was seeing the, the ones that kind of help you feel connected to the world and this experience that you have that can really, at least in my case, and I think in a lot of the cases of others that I know, make you feel super kind of alone. Um, and it's nice to feel that sense of connection. Um, the second step was honestly realizing that this was something that I could do. Um, which feels a little bit ridiculous to say, but like, I, I never thought of myself as someone who could be an entrepreneur, right? Um, my parents always preached the importance of stability to me. And, and that's what I've been focused on. I did a PhD in computational biology. I went into consulting. Um, I'm now in pharma. Um, and it was always about finding kind of work that would mean that you could have a future. And for me also making sure that I could get a green card and actually stay in this country. Um, but I found myself in a stable place kind of over the last few years, you know, got my green card, um, found myself applying to MFA programs. And I'm also go- attending one of those full time. And um, the new school has this thing called an impact entrepreneurship fellowship that kind of, it really opened my eyes that it could be me. Um, and so that was kind of the, the spur of like, okay, let me start thinking about how to actually make this a reality. And so, you know, I applied last winter, um, sort of, you know, noodling around on this idea and decided that I'm going to launch probably in like maybe mid to end of 2021. Like, I think that'll give me enough time of a ramp up. Um, and as you may note, it is not in fact 2021 yet. Um, and the reason that, that, that we're kind of where we are right now is that GR Martin happened. Um, this year, because of the pandemic, it was my first time where I was able to kind of attend the Hugos. Um, and kind of between his celebration of kind of old dead racists and fascists and his absolute re- re- um, lack of respect for the people he was honoring, um, it just felt so disappointing, right? Like um, Rebecca Kwong deserved better, um, Faya deserved better, right? So many people deserved better than like what he had offered. And in that moment, it really kind of struck me that we've come so far as a genre from kind of the HP Lovecrafts 
Um, but we still have so far to go. And I wanted to be part of somebody helping that. Um, and so, you know, I, I had meant to take a year or so to, to kind of get all my ducks in a row. And instead, I just got really pissed off. And I was like, you know what, like, let's just start now. Um, and so that's how we ended up here. Well, interesting. <laughs> um, I mean, I, 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 I think I said this in a previous episode that, or, or no, no, I'm sorry. I said it on, I, I mentioned it on Twitter that you can actually, uh, I, I personally knew that you can write just on pure spite alone. I did not know that you could start a magazine on pure spite alone as well, but <laughs> I, we I didn't either, but here, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, I guess it takes all kinds as they say. Um, and so I guess the, I, let's go back in time a second and let's mm -hmm. see um, what, let's say that you had, you had started Corio, um, let's say whenever, like in the past, mm -hmm. what, uh, just as a hypothetical, what stories do you think or do you, would you have loved to have been able to receive in your slush pile so you could consider them yeah i mean there's there's a squillion of them but i mean you know <laughs> two that i'll mention off the top of my head um and this is also kind of with the caveat that like we ask authors to self-identify um when they're submitting stories so if if i mistake an identity of any of the authors that i mention um during this podcast my apologies um but you know the, the first story that kind of really helped solidify and click like what kind of things I'd be looking for um, was during the Odyssey writing workshop this summer where we were assigned Immersion by Aliette de Boudar. Um, it was published in Clark's World in 2012. Um, and it focuses on kind of two women and a technology called an immerser where users can basically create an avatar to adjust how the world sees you and it translates for you so that you can fit in. Um, it's not really a story with a twist. Um, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who reads it just because it deals with identity and belonging and fitting in, in a really, really beautiful way. And that was kind of the first one where I was like, all right, this really marks like what I would like to see us doing. Um, the second one that kind of is, is at, at the front of, um, of what I was thinking of, even though I have, you know, dozens that I could pull out is also the paper menagerie by Ken Liu. Um, and the story broke my heart just because I remember feeling that type of anger to my parents, right? That like rejection of everything that I came from just because I wanted to fit in. Um, and like, I, I didn't experience the racism that the main character faced in school, but I still tried to push who I was away. And so like, I, I started actually rereading it kind of ahead of, of, of our, um, of this interview. And like, even a third of the way I was already crying, right? It's, it's super beautiful and it hurts to read it, but it just, it feels real and grounded and magical. And like, it's, it's just a treasure of a story. Yes. Um, so yeah, H happy to keep going though. Cause I have, I have a few. No, no, <laughs> go on ahead, go on ahead yeah. feel free. Cause I mean, to be honest with you, like I, you know how, um, you, I guess, and, and I, I'm not entirely sure that we have, uh, people that are going to be submitting to your magazine, but we will probably, uh, send this out into the, you know, the potosphere, if you will. And, um, and you know whoever listens to this, and we'll certainly you know let people know uh, that you you came on, um, you know in lieu of having a first issue, uh, you know because if I'm not mistaken, you are reopening January first. Am I that misremembering correct. that? Yeah. Nope, that's absolutely right. 
Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I have a I have a mental bookmark of when when certain <laughs> magazines are opening because you never know. <laughs> As a writer myself, uh, but uh, I did want to say that you know usually the the advice that you hear is uh, you know read the magazine to find out what the voice is, but mm-hmm. in lieu of having a first issue just yet, you know these are great recommendations to get a feel for what you're talking about. And I feel. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it, I, I, I had, hadn't planned to have the kind of first issue staggered so much with the second submission cycle, but um, we have a fantastic board of directors and they had recommended like, just give yourselves an extra month and make it a longer cycle. And in, in retrospect, I'm very grateful to them just because, you know, starting this kind of venture is is fantastic and everything's gone super well but like the extra time is is there's never enough time basically (laughs) um but anyway um but yeah i guess a few other stories um there there this one's a little bit strange but like debbie urbanski's um urbanski uh when they came to us right it's a second person retelling of an alien invasion that explores xenophobia right um none of the characters necessarily are immigrants it's the aliens who are coming there but it's such a haunting way because the the plural um first person is really really ominous and like really fantastic and really explores this like nefarious side of like what migration means um or rather not like how migration is nefarious but how people might receive it um mm-hmm. more nefariously and harmfully um charles Yu's standard loneliness package um leslie Nekarima who will greet you at home. Um, that one's a, a more metaphorical interpretation of migration. It appeared in the New Yorker in 2015, um, but it's about how women must grow their children from materials like clay. Um, and the main character is desperate for a child. And I I don't think that, like this feels like the loosest interpretation of what we're asking for, but I guess I'm including it just because I want to highlight how like it, the way that the main character is searching for and trying to create a family, I think has this link um to migration in a really fascinating way um which which is all to say that like if you are thinking of submitting a story um don't self-reject even if it feels a little bit tenuous just because as long as there's a speculative element like we will consider and if it hits that something then like you know it it can be published um but yeah did you happen to read and and this may sound uh this may devolve slightly uh, into uh did you read this awesome story um but uh i i'm going to do exactly that uh because it f- it sort of mixes together both the diaspora elements as well or at least the immigration elements as well as food elements which was um to balance the weight of kalem I have not read that one. I was really worried that you were going to say 10 excerpts from an annotated bibliography on the cannibal woman of Ratnabar Island when you talked about food, but um, no, I have not not read the one that you mentioned. Tell me about it. uh, So it's, it's a very, uh, it's, it's by Arby Lemberg and it showed up in um, Beneath Ceaseless Skies uh, at, I believe in the December or no, I'm sorry, my mistake, the March issue, uh, issue 300, that uh, of this year and it's this beautiful sort of haunting and just utterly charming description of like this basically the main character is a refugee and they're on a ship and they have to leave and 
they find a place before they leave they they buy an onion like a magical onion from a a, a marketplace that's supposedly semi-liminal and then like the onion has like a engraved in it and it sort of sh- shines with light from within uh it sort of has engraved like the the city of kalem which is sort of like a floating city and so on and so forth it's just i, I can't recommend it enough because it it's one of those few stories where I didn't feel like there was a lot. There wasn't a lot of action like, uh, like happening during the story, but there's so much happening. Uh, and it's just so well sort of woven together that I was completely charmed and, and immersed, uh, which is a great feeling, uh, you know, having read my share of things, uh, not everything sort of draws you in like that. Well, I've already pulled it up. So as soon as we finish chatting, I'm going to kind of dive into that story. I'm really excited to read it. No, it's, I, I, I hope you, I, I'm pretty sure you'll love it if that's the type of thing that you're looking for. But um, so in, and so I guess my question is, since you're, you are you taking an MFA to as a writer or, well, I guess maybe that's unfair because to write is to edit, but mm-hmm. <laughs> what, uh, like, uh, I guess my question is what drew you into writing at first? So this is, this is a long and involved answer, but I, I've always lived in books. Um, and like, I, I mentioned this before, but you know, I, I had trouble belonging when I was a kid, not to go all like therapist's couch, but like books really were kind of that, that refuge from from the rest of the world. And um, when I, and I will get to the writing part eventually, I promise, but uh, the prequel is important. Um, (laughs) When I, when I moved to Poland, right, I was 10 years old. I didn't speak the language because uh, my mom had always spoken to me in Polish and I spoke English back because like I mentioned, like I just wanted to fit in. Um, Don't do that kids. Like it's, it's, it's horrible. I mean, Um, but I, I kind of moved there and realized that I couldn't speak the language. I was at a new school. Um, and we went to an English language bookstore and my mom let me pick only one book, which meant that I picked the longest book that there was, which happened to be the eye of the world, um, by Robert Jordan. And so kind of that moment, even though I'd read a bunch of, um, you know, fantastical books for kids before that really was the gateway to me loving speculative fiction. Um, and that book series is still one of my most treasured kind of ones. Um, I reread every once in a while, but (laughs) Because I had found this love of speculative fiction, that was what I wanted to write. Um, but I was always told that was not the right thing, um, that I should grow out of it, that, you know, I mean, you talked about this earlier, right? It's kind of the the junk pile, consider the junk pile on the edge of literature. Um, and so I had, I never really wrote, right? Like I, I did well in essays, I did, you know, English lit in college, but I... I had always I always forced myself to read the old dead white men because that was what you were supposed to do if you were serious about literature. Um, and I never wrote because I was scared that I had nothing impactful to say. Um, and it wasn't until my PhD where, you know, for, for anyone who's, who's done a PhD, it's basically an exercise in masochism because people just tear your work apart all the time. Um, and they're supposed to, they're supposed to show that your science is like faulty and you have to find the holes in it and you have to fix them. 
Um, but the great thing about that is that eventually you stop giving a crap about what people think. Um, and so as I was kind of getting towards the end of my PhD, I'd finally developed that skin and I realized don't give a shit anymore. Sorry for the swear. Um, no. and I started writing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's perfectly allowed and more so uh, with that sentiment. So, uh, so in that case, uh, you, you, you you developed a bit of a, a a thicker skin about what other people thought, and that's what got you into more writing. Is that is is that what I'm getting? Yeah, um, I basically like kind of in my last year of my PhD, I I took a few workshops. I started kind of noodling about with short stories and books. I wrote one one first draft of a book that will literally never see the light of day, um, <laughs> and you know that was a great experience. Um, and kind of it, 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 for the first time, it kind of felt like, again, this sense sentiment of home for me where like, I, I like disappearing into these worlds that I created in my head, um, which sounds, I guess, a bit nuts when I'm saying it out loud, but whatever, let's go with it. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, and as I started, you know, after my PhD, I went into consulting, which is a lot of like, you know, 60 to 80 to sometimes hundred hour weeks. Um, and in spite of that and through it, I'd be, you know, I'd finish work on the client side at 10 or 11 PM and still find myself writing. Um, and so once I was getting to the point where, you know, I, I was having my green card, I didn't have to worry about like, you know, if I lost my job, I'd be deported. I have to go home. I'd have to leave my husband. Um, I just decided to, to focus on writing a little bit. And so kind of the MFA in, in a super long winded answer is really a way to, surround myself by people in the city who are as dedicated to storytelling and in a super supportive supportive community which is what you know I've, I've heard um the new school is and what it has been so far of course the whole point of kind of being in a community together uh side by side in a classroom has all gone out the window um right. but it's it's still been a really great experience so far um so yeah that's that's basically how i got to that interesting okay um so I guess my other question would be, and, and this sounds like the same question, but I found that, and I don't know if this is true of everyone, but I know that for me, like, I remember like maybe reading, you know, like, I guess one of the first things that I remember reading in genre was the Hobbit because I, you know, it was the time period and whatnot, but I mean, I enjoyed it thoroughly and then, you know, tried three maybe four times to get into Lord of the Rings. Actually, that's not fair. I, I tried to get into Lord of the Rings before I'd read The Hobbit. And I, for whatever reason, my brain knew that there were connections to to a previous work. Uh, and that sort of stopped me. So, yeah, the thing is, uh, I read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and Narnia and all that stuff. And that was what got me reading like more genre stuff. And there was a lot of fantasy stuff, but there was you know large gaps in what I read because also I, I read all sorts of like gaming and uh, gaming tie-ins and st stuff like that. But I don't think that uh, for me, at least, I didn't think to myself, you know what? I can write until much later and I started reading, I think it was like Cage Johnson who had a fantastic book called The Fox Woman, which I'm, I think is an expansion of a short story of hers, uh, that I read that book and thought to myself, you know what? This is fabulous and I can do this. 
And I don't know if you had that weird two or three steps to get to, I can read this to, I can write this or, or is that simply something that I'm making up? I, so I feel like I've had books where I've read them and I've been like, I can do better than this. Mm. Um, but I also feel like I, right now, my biggest struggle is kind of worrying that I don't have anything important enough to say. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm trying to push through right now, even though there are books that I love that like really are just escapist. Um, but I, I maybe it's that old, like kind of specter hanging over my shoulder of like, you know, literature being something worthy and exploring the truths of humanity and all that bullshit. Um, <laughs> but that's something I'm struggling with right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can say that there is one book that fundamentally changed my life as a writer or as somebody who, who, who wanted to write. Mm-hmm. Um, which was the Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Lavelle. Um, so and good. so for, so good for, for those who aren't familiar. So this is a retelling of an HP Lovecraft story. And, and I'm sure everyone knows at this point, HP Lovecraft was a raging racist, super xenophobic, just the worst. Um, and it's, it's a retelling of one of his stories, a horror at Red Hook from the perspective of um, a black character in it. And it was, I think published in 2015. I might be wrong on that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a retelling of that Cthulhu mythos through the lens of Black Lives Matter. And I remember I was walking down Broadway to meet a friend. I kind of turned on maybe like 35th Street. Um, and I got to, I, I read while I walk, by the way. Um, not, I, I've gotten very good at it, but, you know, not the safest thing to do. Um, but I just stopped in my tracks as I finished the last page just because it left me feeling terrified and amazed at what this author could do and what the power of speculative fiction could be. And I think that was the kind of story that really showed me that like, you know, not only was I, 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 I did I have a thicker skin around what people said, but like, it really showed me the power of the genre. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, I, I could definitely see that. Um, uh, I, I was somewhat floored by how good that was in, I honestly, I didn't want it to end, but it has to, as with all stories, it has to have an end. Um, yeah, I, I, I do have to say, and, and it's sort of interesting because obviously, uh, Lovecraft being who he was, uh, I don't know that, that he even thought that (laughs) later people would even think his stuff is, is interesting, but he left the door open and now we have a flood of people that are, you know, sort of writing, Contrary to some of the the really harmful shit is that was in his stories mm-hmm. uh, regarding you know racism and and hate and you know mm-hmm. I, I always get the feeling that he was a man that was born afraid and probably afraid of everything, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. doesn't excuse anything, but it does maybe uh, explain some things. Um, yeah. uh, that being yeah, said, I, I was shocked. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, oh, I, yes. I don't even know where I was going with that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I didn't read anything of his actually until years later because um, one of the schools I applied to was Columbia and they require um, a kind of essay about literature as opposed to just like a fiction writing sample. Um, Victor Laval teaches at Columbia and I, being a ridiculous human being, decided to write my essay on The Ballad of Black Tom. Um, <laughs> and I, when I read The Horror at Red Hook for the first time, I was like, I, I, I had heard he was a racist mm. and I 
had never fully understood just to what level he was. And like you said, like to what level he was absolutely terrified of everything and anyone who could be in any way considered other. Um, so I can't recommend this story, but it certainly was an experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we wanted to be somewhat, uh, I don't want to use the word generous, but maybe understanding, I, I also feel like he was afraid that he didn't, meet the marks either so you know that that's sort of like this weird uh, yeah yeah this I mean, weird I, hatred. I get that yeah, I, yeah I, I I, i'm not saying it's excusing anything i'm just saying that it's sort of when it's turned inward it, it becomes really awful and i'm not saying that he did anything great early on for sure um yeah. but yeah anyway the have you read uh laval's changeling I haven't yet. It is on my list. Um, I am partway through the devil and silver, which I've enjoyed, but um, Mm. I've heard very good things about the changeling. Yeah. I I enjoyed it very much, but um, so yeah, in any case, I did want to also ask you. uh, So what I guess then would have been, is, is there a work that made you say, you know what? I, maybe my talents are better served in editing. So I, I think the thing that actually pushed me towards wanting to edit um, is the workshops that I've been in. Um, and, you know, Odyssey this summer um, was a, a great example of it, just because there were so many stories I read where, like, how do I say this? It is, it's, it is a struggle for me. Like I mentioned, with my own writing about like worrying that I don't have anything to say. Um, and my, you know, my critique partners are fantastic at helping me like, you know, realize that maybe sometimes I do. Um, but in, in these workshops, um, including ones at Gotham and at UCLA Extension and then at uh, Odyssey most recently, I realized just how much I love seeing a friend's story and seeing their talent shining through and then helping them find those like one or two tweaks that mm-hmm. makes it just even better. and it's one of the most rewarding things as a reader to feel like you're helping somebody tell a story that's important to them. Um, so I, I, I think it's just with, with extreme gratitude towards the friends that I've made kind of in these critique groups. Um, I, I, I think I've, I've managed to serve them um, through it and I, I hope to keep doing that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's where it came from. Excellent. All right. Um so did you have, I guess we could probably move into maybe talking about Corio and what you have forthcoming. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we're, I guess like what kind of what's coming down the road. So we, like I mentioned, are kind of finalizing our first issue. Um, we have had some truly fantastic stories. Um, we actually ended up losing one because we're a simultaneous sub- submission uh, magazine, which was thoroughly heartbreaking, but we're also super happy for the author. Um, but we we kind of have this finalization happening now. Um, in January, we are going to be running a Kickstarter um, just to kind of help support our first year. Um, we're looking kind of at different tiers. One thing that we are expanding to, so kind of as I started this, I, I write, I edit. Um, that is where the things I can do lie. Um, and so I'd figured that, um, you know, after the first year, we can start potentially expanding into a podcast or recordings of stories. Um, and as I put out the call for volunteers, um, 
we had somebody come along, um, Catalina, who's just basically was like, I, I would like to do this. So if you're interested, like, let me help you figure out how to record stories. Um, and so what we're also going to be looking at in our Kickstarter is seeing whether we can fund right now, we we're, we're, like we we'd be able to probably fund with the, with the budget that we have um, one story recording per, per issue, but we'd like to see if we can get all of them recorded. Um, so that's kind of where our Kickstarter is heading. Um, and then we'll be opening submissions also in January. Um, and then our first story forthcoming February 15th, or first, first story, excuse me, first issue uh, coming February 15th. So that's kind of the near future. Yeah. And then hopefully cool. many years of issues to come. So, um, and uh, it, uh, as I understand it, like there's plenty of magazines that have several sort of streams of revenue that do that. So uh, do, you, do you foresee getting into the Patreon game uh, further down the road? I'd like us to do that probably in year two. So kind of as I'm thinking about the future of the magazine, um, I would like us to kind of year one, kind of establish ourselves, um, kind of figure out the, the processes, the stories, um, the, the voice more strongly. Um, year two is focused on kind of making sure that everything that we have is in audio format as well as print, uh, digital print format, um, as well as expanding to kind of a Patreon model where we can hopefully have more behind the scenes stuff. Um, and then in years two and three, the other really big development that I want to get to is starting to pay our volunteers. Um, I don't think we will be able to afford full-time wages, um, just because that's a lot, but, um, I, so many magazines are run as labors of love. Um, and, I, I've seen that, you know, when when magazines kind of try to raise the rates for writers um, from like eight cents a word to ten cents a word or whatnot, they they have success. But as soon as they start raising funds for the staff, um, there's less of less excitement for that, I guess, um, just because this is how you know it's it's always been. And I'm really grateful that we are able to we've been able to find such a fantastic team. And I, I really cannot emphasize enough just how amazing the people at Corio are, I feel incredibly fortunate um, to have such, such fantastic individuals like helping read the stories and giving their opinions and, and pushing forward new voices to make sure that like they get considered and, and all that kind of stuff. But um, we, we'd like to get to the point to at least be able to print, uh, pay, you know, um, some token amounts to our first readers, hopefully eventually more um, as well as to our kind of editors and directing team, just because it's, it's a lot of work. Um, and, you know, I, I don't ever expect to be paid for this, but it, it feels unfair to ask, you know, the team to always work for free. So hopefully um, I'll be able to get there either through kind of Kickstarter, Patreon. Um, I'll be looking at applying for some grants if I can. Um, but that's kind of all going to be figured out in the during the first year um, and second <laughs> year once, once we have our feet under us a little bit more. So how many, can I ask you this, or is it like uh, too much of a trade secret? How many years do you have planned ahead? Um, I mean, as many as we can muster. <laughs> like uh, I, I would like to keep going forever until I'm old and decrepit. Um, but I, I mean, I'm thinking for the first three years at the very least, right? Like, because I think that's the proof, like in the pudding. Like, you won't see what we can do and what we can achieve in the first issue. I think people have an inkling, and I hope people will be excited for it. But I think that you know, even a year is probably too short to truly have a magazine hit its stride. Um, yeah. so I'm hoping that within kind of two or three, we'll be able to really, really, really be a force to be reckoned with. Excellent. 
Well, I do too. Honestly, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> um, I am too terrified, but excited. <laughs> well, you know, I think some of the, sometimes those things go hand in hand when you're trying something out for, you know, issue number one. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us or any other things that you'd like to uh, perhaps promote? Oh my goodness. Um, I, you know, all I can say right now is that like, I guess, you know, follow our Twitter, um, at Choreomeg, not just for like us, you know, asking for submissions, but also because like I mentioned, we have a truly talented team of writers, uh, a, a truly talented team of readers, um, many of whom are also writers. And so one thing that, you know, we've been cognizant about trying to do is also kind of sharing the work that they're doing outside of Choreo. Um, so if I may say so myself, we also linked to some really, really great stories by them. Um, so I guess just promoting our team, you can see the full list of individuals who are kind of pitching in on our website. And really, I, again, cannot emphasize enough just how truly fantastic they are. Yeah. All right. Um, well, if that was it, uh, and that would be at uh, choreomag.com, uh, right? Uh, yes. I, I should know my website by now. No. You, you, yep. Uh, it's chore choreomag.com. Yes. Uh, and you can search out the masthead and see all of the wonderful readers and staff. Um, well, uh, Alexandra, thanks for uh, coming on uh, and deciding to talk with us. Thank you and so much for having me. This was so much fun. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, and uh, yeah, I do want to wish you a very, very uh, successful first issue launch. And uh, we'll see you. We'll see you what happens then. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to hear this episode. <laughs> <laughs> all right well if that's well, it, you're uh, of it. <laughs> <laughs> if that is it uh thanks everyone and uh, we'll see you soon <laughs>